And welcome back to the Cheers to Education podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Bob. Hey, Bob. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. It's a nice sunny day here in uh, in Bali. In Bali today. Nice. In Bali most days. Yeah. In Jakarta, also nice and sunny. Not quite as nice sandy beaches here, but, you know, we'll make do with the nice frosty beer here. How about you? You got anything to drink Sorry. there? I do. I have a I have a beer. I have a San Miguel Light like I did a couple weeks ago. Nice. I got a little lo- a local one, a local lager. What is it, a Bintang? Anchor. Anchor. Yeah, that's about as good as an anchor. You could throw that to the bottom of the ocean. Hey, it's 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 uh better than some other places that we'll talk about today. Yeah, maybe so. And today, what are we going to talk about, Bob? Today, we're going to talk about teaching abroad. We've got some interactions from some people who are teaching abroad, and we thought hey, we've been doing this for quite a long time now, so maybe we would have some tips or some some things, experiences that we've encountered in our over almost over 10 years here, right, abroad. So we have lots of experience and stuff that we know about. And stuff. And stuff. So <laughs> yeah. let's share some of that stuff, right? Yeah. Well, we're going to break today's episode down into about four parts to make it easier and a little bit more organized. We're going to talk about what do you need to teach abroad? There, there's so many different things that you need, not just physical things that you need, but also a certain mentality. Also, once you have the things that you need, where to start looking for one of those jobs. And after you have a place to look and maybe you have a country lined up or a place lined up, uh, what you're going to expect there. And we can't really speak to every single country because we haven't lived in every single country, but we can give a generalized idea. And hopefully in the future, we can invite some guests on the show and who have been to these countries and they can tell us a little bit about their experiences there. But today you're just stuck with Bob and I. So after we talk about what to expect, we'll discuss some of the ways that we had to adapt and some of the things that we did to adapt, maybe in terms of with the culture and in a school culture, once you do start working in a foreign school, because it's going to be a little bit different than what you're used to working in, you know, maybe in the States or in England or wherever you're from. So that's how we're going to structure it. So what do you need, Bob? What would you say you need? A pulse. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, you need a pulse. But you know what, though? showing up is the most important thing, right? I mean, I've known some people who have not been very great teachers, but they've shown up all the time and they, they're they probably still teaching at the same school that they were at when I met them. So a pulse is a very important thing to have. That's right, it does help. So there's a couple other things, I guess, too. So overall, in a lot of countries, there's a trend moving towards having a degree and more specifically having a degree in education. Without that, you can also get by in some places with a TEFL certificate, which is a teaching English foreign language and CELTA or, or a CELTA certificate. But the top level jobs that you're going to want to get into eventually, you're going to need a bachelor's degree, a master's degree in English, if you're teaching English, I guess, or education or a related field to what you will be teaching. And then also probably a teaching license from the UK, the US or wherever it is that you come from. And probably quite a bit of experience to get into some of those top level jobs, but the entry level jobs, I mean, a pulse and a a TEFL certificate is probably enough. Yeah, absolutely. What you're going to find when you apply for schools abroad, and we'll talk a little bit more about our experiences in in the countries that we've been in, is the, there there are different tiers of schools. Uh, You're going to find language centers being around the lower, the lower end, not in terms of, I mean, how do I say this politely? They're, they're lower tier because they pay lower and they are sort of like after school programs to supplement a regular school day. So it's going to be a little bit different than teaching in a, in a proper school. And those schools are going to pay a little bit lower and they're just going to require, as Bob said, 
a pulse and probably a bachelor's degree in any field. It uh, doesn't have to necessarily be in English or in the subject that you're teaching. As long as you can speak English well, you have a pulse, they might require as well a TEFL certification or a CELTA certification. Once you start moving up a little bit into maybe a public school for the country, they might just require a bachelor's degree and a license. Uh, they might not require a license at all, but at least a bachelor's degree in a related field to the subject that you'll be teaching. Much like in the state's private schools, yeah, there is a growing trend that private schools require a license, but not all schools will require a license. But the really good schools, the schools that are going to pay you six or $7,000 per month tax-free, they're going to require a license, definitely. In addition to a license, they're also probably going to ask for or at least look for a master's degree and several years of experience. That's right. And I know, I think there's, I think what you mentioned earlier about there being different tiers, I think that's, that's a good thing to point out. Like, I mean, of course, we don't want to downgrade any school and say that these schools aren't good. There've been some schools that I've worked at that maybe are, would be considered like uh, low level entry level schools, but that mean they've had great teachers there as well. So at the very first level, there's these language schools that are after school programs. And then they also have some of the local schools also where you'll be maybe one of the only foreign teachers there and you'll be teaching some grammar and things as well. But I think mostly conversation. What do you think? Conversation. Yeah, it's going to be mostly, yeah, it'll, it'll mostly be conversational English. Uh, and then, and then you move up one tier from that and then you got the national plus schools or the lower level international schools. So at those kind of schools, you could probably, you would probably be okay with just a bachelor's degree in any subject. They would probably prefer if you had one related to ed- education or the subject you were teaching, but I think it's not completely necessary. And then as Zach mentioned, the very top level, you're going to have to pull out all the bells and whistles and it takes some time to get there. So those are the basic three tiers, I think, when you're trying to look for what school matches best with you, with with what you already have. Yeah. And once you, once you kind of do a self-inventory and see what you have that you can offer to these schools... You can start looking online at some places. Uh, one place is teachaway.com. They have a lot of different job postings there. Basically, it's a middleman, uh, an agency, a headhunter that will put you in contact with other schools that are looking for someone like you with whatever education and experience that they might require. Another one is footprintsrecruiting.com. They also do the same. And another is gooverseas.com. Another one I didn't mention here. And another one I didn't mention here is Dave's ESL Cafe. That's a big one. And there are a lot of jobs on there, but it mostly focuses on Korea and China, or at least it did the last time I looked at it. And those are going to be mostly, you know, tier one positions where you're working at a language center or you're doing a supplemental after after school course at a public school or something along those lines. But the jobs are plenty. And and you'll you'll find jobs in in places like uh, Korea, China, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Thailand, Taiwan, South South America, uh, a handful of different countries in Europe, Dubai. I mean, Japan, I didn't even put that on the list, but that's another good one. They have a really good program there called the JET program. I don't know if they still have it, but they did a couple of years ago and it was quite competitive to get into. Anything else there, Bob, that I'm missing? Um, there's a handful of countries and I guess maybe some European countries as well. I think you mentioned uh, some, South American company, uh, some South American countries like Chile, Brazil. Argentina, things like that as well. But yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of, of schools, especially after school programs and those lower tier schools looking for people for education positions. Right. And what you're going to find as well is, and, and this is obviously something that's going to be important to you, is the salary and what these schools offer as a package. 
I would say almost no matter which tier school you look for, they're almost always going to offer you return flights to and from your home country. They'll all most likely offer you health insurance of some kind. And more often than not, they'll all provide you with housing. But it's going to be something either that the school already owns and they're going to place you in, or they're going to give you a stipend where you can look for housing once you get there, probably with the help of another staff member. But the major difference is going to be the salary. So, for example, in Korea, there are language schools, and they all used to pay around $2,000 a month, give or take. Uh, that would be tax-free. Yeah, and that's, and that's also, I mean, maybe we can just say it right now. So the countries that I've worked in so far are Korea, South Korea, of course, Thailand, and Indonesia. And Zach? Indonesia and Korea here. Right. So we, we've got a, a lot of experience, especially in those first two countries, Indonesia and Korea. I've, I worked in Thailand for a few, uh, maybe a little bit over six months, so not too long. But yeah, the Korea, Korea is one that we know quite a lot about in, in Indonesia as well. So starting out in Korea, you can, you make a, I think you'll probably make about $2,000 plus all the additional benefits that Zach mentioned as well. And that's for the public schools. Again, you'll be the conversation teacher. You might be the only or one of the only Western teachers in the school. Uh, that's also the same about pretty much about the same for the language schools as well. So you'll, ha- you'll have nearly the same responsibilities and nearly the same salary with basically the same benefits as well. That's right. And in, in Korea as well, uh, just because we both work there. So we have a little bit more to say about it than some of the other countries, but you'll, you'll see that the salary is more than enough to, to give you a pretty happy, happy experience there. Uh, Absolutely. They, and and when we were living there, I, I taught in two schools there, and they always gave me a good apartment, that's for sure. And I worked for the public school system both times. But from what I understand, as of a couple of years ago, the Korean government started slimming down the program. At the time, it was called EPIC, or if it was up in Seoul, it was the GEPIC program. I heard they started slimming it down. Uh, they wanted to cut the number of foreign workers quite a bit. So now they're quite, what is the word, selective? That's my understanding. Yeah, I, yeah I've seen that as well, yeah. Uh I think, did you go through Epic? Gepic. Gepic. Okay. No, no, sorry, I, sorry. I was Epic. I was Epic. So, yeah. So my first year, I worked at a language school in Korea where Zach and I met. And then my second year, I worked for Epic in a public school. And you know what? I mean, apartment-wise, salary-wise, benefits-wise, it was almost identically the same. I mean, I guess I was earning a little bit more because in the second year, because I had a little bit, because I had a year of experience. But besides that, it was the the benefits and everything were about the same. Yeah. And what you'll find with that salary that you have there and all the benefits is that it's really more than enough, as I said before, to enjoy yourself. And you're going to find something similar to that in other countries as well. But the salary is going to be different. It's going to be an economic decision based on that country. So, for example, in Korea, between two and three thousand dollars per month is your take home salary. In China, you might find that it's a little bit less. Uh, It it could be anywhere from seven hundred dollars a month to five thousand if you're teaching in an international school. Um, let's say Shanghai or Beijing. I know a guy now who teaches in next to Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and he he says he makes somewhere around five thousand a month or something like that. So it can be quite competitive if you get up into those international school positions as well. Saudi Arabia pays used to pay quite a bit. I remember back in the day when I was looking for employment overseas, the Saudi Arabia jobs paid so well. But since then, I've seen that they've come down quite a bit to around two to three thousand. How about, how was it like in Thailand? Yeah, um, it was about the same thing that you were talking about in China. It was it's a it was a little bit more than a thousand dollars for for maybe kind of a middle of the road school, 
with a stipend for apartment and things like that. But, you know, places like that, I think places like Thailand and to some degree now Saudi Arabia, because before the the wages were so good and maybe even Dubai and Malaysia and some of these other places, we can also kind of lump them in there, although the salaries are going to be different. They kind of get flooded, right? The market kind of gets flooded. And then the salary and benefits package just go down because they can offer people less money and they'll they'll end up taking it. But, you know, I had a great time there in Thailand. I mean, $1,300 in Thailand depends on where you're at, I guess. Depends on where you're at. But it's enough to get by for sure. I mean, depends on what kind of lifestyle you want to have. But I think if you, if you were frugal enough, $1,300 would be perfectly fine. It's more than most of the locals earn. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just an economic decision, as you said, and they know what they know what would be enough for a foreigner to live on. Because obviously, as a foreigner, you're not going to know all the same places, and you're not going to shop at all the same places that a local would. So the prices are going to be a little bit higher for you. So they take that into consideration most often, more often than not. So they'll make sure that you have something that's at least livable. You might not be able to save all the time, but in let's say the the middle of the road school to top international school, you're going to make a decent amount of money that you'd be able to save 50% of your salary each month or 60% of your salary, depending on what position you're in, how much experience you have. Do you have a master's degree? Do you have a PhD? Do you have a license? All those different things will factor into it. Definitely. So how about when you finally get, you, you've done your self-assessment, you've found somewhere to work, got accepted, sent in all your paperwork. That's another story, sending in all the paperwork and all the kind of FBI checks, or depending on where you live, I guess, FBI or Interpool or and then health check and all these kind of things, degree certifications, all these kind of things. But once you finally get all that out of the way, Zach, what can you expect upon arrival? If you've never been abroad before or worked abroad, if you like, if this isn't going to the Bahamas for a couple of weeks and hanging out on the beach, this is living. This is a complete lifestyle change. And not only that, you're going to have to work in a multicultural environment. So obviously the first thing I'm going to say is you are going to experience culture shock. Things are going to be different than you're used to. You're going to have to Look for new places to find food. If you need to go to the doctor, you're going to have to find that. More often than not, you're going to have people at your school that are willing to help you find these things, but it's going to be the shock that you can't just do it yourself straight away. That's going to hit you pretty soon. It's, it's funny you mentioned that, the, the doctor part. You know, my I think it was about two months after I got to Korea. That was my, my very first year. As Zach knows, we were living in a very small village. There wasn't very many people there at all. And uh, I got tonsillitis and I kept throwing up everything that I ate, I drank, I threw it up. So eventually I found the courage to just walk into a clinic and then just hope to find someone that could speak English at least a little bit. And I, I thank God I found it. And after a few injections and things, I was okay. But yeah, it was, it was a different experience for sure. So the culture shock is definitely real, but there's also a lot of great things that come along with it, right? What an adventure it definitely is. My original plan when I moved abroad was just to go for one year, get a little bit of experience, come back to the US and teach. That was in 2009. So now it's 2018. So that was quite a long time ago. So the adventure's a great part of living abroad. You're, you're going to find a lot of things are different than what you were used to, completely different. Going back to the, the doctor story, I think this is pretty fun, is it was in my second year of teaching in Korea. And for those of you who taught in Korea before, you know that every year you have to get a health checkup. It's required and they test everything. They test every part of your health basically uh, in a full physical to determine how good of shape you are. So I remember I had to go to this uh, clinic kind of in a rural area to get mine done. And I'm the only expat there and I'm waiting in the waiting room 
And keep in mind, this entire health check comes with HIV tests, herpes, hepatitis. Uh, what are the, I don't know, some, some of the other ones that don't go away. And I remember sitting there, I'm in the waiting room among everyone, and the nurse comes out and she yells in Korean. She says, uh, foreigner, foreigner for the HIV check, foreigner for the <laughs> HIV check. And everybody just turns and looks at me. And I was like, man, like, imagine that happening in the States. If that would happen in the States, that, you know, there's no privacy. So everybody's just giving me the, the, the stink eye. They're looking at me like, oh, these, <laughs> these damn foreigners, you know, they, they all got HIV. They're all getting tested for it. And then I go back there and, and, and I get my blood drawn for it. And I come back out and then uh, I have to wait again for another test. And then the same nurse comes back out again and she's like, oh, Foreigner for hepatitis, foreigner for hepatitis. <laughs> and I was like, geez, these people think I'm STD written. And everybody's I think they could just test for them all at the same time, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, she must have forgotten. I don't know. Or she didn't draw enough blood, but whatever it was, it was so embarrassing. It was so yeah. embarrassing. And then everyone probably moves about two or three seats away from you, right? Well, they already had. They, they were already <laughs> two or three seats away from me. But I, yeah, I they, got behind, they got behind a glass door after that, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, they did. But, you know, you meet a lot of great people really when you move abroad. I met Zach. I met a couple of other really good friends, especially when I was in Korea. You know, even here in Indonesia, I've got a lot of great friends as well. Some unforgettable times. I remember playing baseball at the top of a mountain one time. One of our friends worked at a school. It was really, you know, a, a hill or a mountain, I guess. It was it was pretty tall. We would drive up there with our bats and baseball equipment and stuff and then hit some baseball, drink some beers go eat Korean barbecue after we were done, man, that, I mean, that was such a great time. And I don't think I would have been able to have that kind of experience if I would have stayed at home in the U S. Yeah, it's true. It's a completely different experience. You do so many different things. You meet so many different people and there, there's really nothing that's ever boring about it. Is there like, there's not, you don't really want to rush home and then do nothing. You want to, you want to do your job, earn your income, spend some time with kids, teaching them whatever subject it might be. And then once you're done, you want to go do something. I mean, there's always something new to do and something new to explore, to see, and to meet people to meet. Uh, it's it's completely different. It's an adventure, as you said before. Yeah, we've lived at both sides of the spectrum, right? So we we started out in a village of how many people? Like 5,000, maybe even less than 5,000 people. A village in the middle of nowhere in, in South Korea to a super mega city of Jakarta and then on to a resort island of Bali. So we've seen quite a bit of different things. And then, like Zach said, there's always something to do. Even in the village, there was always something to do. So get immersed in it, you know, enjoy it, get involved, do whatever you can. How about different ways to adapt to the local culture and things like that? You got any tips or anything that people might want to take note of? Yeah, I think we already kind of discussed it. I mean, going out and doing things, meeting local people, making local friends, befriending different business owners and things like that. I remember in the small town that I met you in, I befriended this Korean guy. Still, He and I are still very close. We still communicate regularly. He owned the only bar and restaurant, uh, like pub style, in this small town. And I would go there, I don't know, once or twice per week, just hang out with him, drink a little bit of soju and have some beer, practice my Korean. He would practice his English just hang out. Sometimes he would take me fishing. Sometimes we'd go hiking. Stayed in a little mu- in one of their mud huts for New Year's Eve one time. Man, what an experience for sure. Yeah, that was a good time. I I, I will never forget that uh, New Year's that we had with all of our buddies down there. 
and we stayed in this guy's friends. It was like a homemade, I don't want to call it a cabin because it wasn't. It was made out it was of like clay. It was a clay hut. Yeah. Um, and we stayed in there. For clay and soju bottles. Yeah, soju bottles were lined through the clay to form like, like a windows. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty cool. So do that kind of thing. You know, don't, don't just move there. I, I did have one friend. He moved there when he found out that I was there, but he ended up living in another city. And I kind of persuaded him to come because I thought he would like it and he didn't have much going on at the time. And he, he rarely went out. Like he stayed in his room almost all the time and he just had a mis- miserable time. So to get acclimated, definitely go out and walk around and meet people. People are always excited to talk to you more often and then, than not. And then search on social media and Facebook and stuff. They've A lot of places have groups for the community and stuff like that. That's how I met Zach. I went, I went onto Facebook and found a group for the community they had a dinner scheduled out at some barbecue restaurant. So we went out there and then I met a bunch of people and, you know, made a bunch of friends that way before, before that, that was like the first time that I ever had ever gone out when I was there too. So was, I had been there for about two or three weeks and I was starting to have second, like second thoughts about it really. You know, I was worried that I made the wrong decision and the culture shock was really hitting me. But then once you get out and expand your social circle and find friends, I mean, you're going to love every single day that you're there. Yeah, I really woke up and, and said, dang, I really wish I want to go home. Unless it's around Christmas or Thanksgiving or you know something like that. But you'd go back even for then, Christmas. Even then, we, even then we would buy a turkey. Even to this day, we buy a turkey and then grill it or uh, roast it, make some p- potatoes and all these kind of things as well. So you kind of learn to live with where, where you're at and then adapt. And then the place kind of adapts to you as well, too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how you're going to adapt to the, the living environment. But the other thing you want to consider is what's it going to be like at work? Because everybody's been employed before. And if you, if you had a job in a school prior to moving abroad to teach in another school or whatever your profession may have been, it's going to be completely different than what you're used to in terms of how the hierarchical structure works of that school and the bureaucratic nightmare. You think in the States, maybe it's, it's very bureaucratic to work in a school, but in places like Korea and Indonesia, in my Asia. experience, and Asia in general, it's a very hierarchical society. So you're going to see it, you know, maybe five times what you're used to. And my tip to adapting to that is just take a deep breath and relax and appreciate where you're at and take it in strides because you're not going to change anything that's been done that way for so long. So that's the first thing you have to remind yourself is that you have no control over the culture. That's how it's going to be. That's how the working culture is. You might be able to provide some good tips or uh, different ways to make things a little bit more organized to your liking. Things that Bob and I have seen is Maybe it's disorganized, everything's ad hoc, and you might be able to kind of start conditioning, I guess is a good way to put it, is conditioning people to understand that you won't participate in those types of situations unless it's organized or, you know, little things like that. But overall, the entire structure as a whole, the organizational structure of your school is that way for a reason, and it's been that way for a long time. So I would say in most situations, just accept it because you don't want to be the guy who shows up and then tells everybody what they're doing wrong. That's for, that's for damn sure. Right. I guess this is an education podcast, so we should talk about the school culture of the, some of the schools that we've, that we've worked in as well. And yeah, it's, it's quite different than what you would expect to see in a school, even sometimes, right? And then quite different from if you've taught at home, what that experience is like. The expectations from your coworkers, from your management, from the parents is a lot different than what you're going to face over here. The, a lot of the times the kids, especially if you're coming here to teach, teach English, they see you and they think, wow, okay, 
I'm going to have my kids spend some time with this guy. And then after another year or two, my kids can be able to speak English. You know, that's not how it works, of course, but the expectations are there and they're quite different than something that you would see in the U.S. where they're working towards different aptitudes and they're they're working towards graduation and passing and going to a different university and things like that. I mean, if they were, they worry about those these kind of things all around the world as well. But they're the, the expectations for you as a teacher, as a, as a foreigner in these different countries is going to be different than teaching in the UK or the US or some other English native English, I would say. Yeah, the interactions with parents as well. I've, I've never seen so many parents involved in day-to-day operations of a school. Like, yeah, in the, in the States, there's PTCs and things like that, but uh, different parent-teacher associations of that sort. But what I've seen in Korea and what I've seen in Indonesia and even, uh, yeah, in, in those two countries, what I've seen is parents are involved. They come to the school every single day and they want to meet with the teacher all the time and they want to see what's going on and they want to ask questions about this and they want to ask questions about that. So it's just the expectations are different, as you said, and, and it's, you know, it's just different. Uh, it's just really different. It's something that you're not going to be used to straight away. And, and most importantly, it's going to be different in most countries, too. There's going to be different quirks. And then, I mean, like I said, even for, mo- for what you're t- where you were talking about, for some parents, this is their job. This is their hobby is to track and monitor the progress of their children. Now, I don't know how healthy that is, really, but that's kind of just the reality of it. So you, you kind of got to cope with that and find the best strategy to make things work for you. Yeah. And, it, and what you said, it's not such a bad thing that they want to track and, and follow the progress of their... To an, to an extent. Yeah, right. But you don't want it to be overbearing. You still want to leave that communication line open and you still want to develop a good relationship. But but yeah, it's sometimes it is overbearing. I can remember one situation where a child lost his iPad, just disappeared. And... The, the, the mom came to the school and insisted on sitting in our in our security room to watch all the CCTV and she sat in the, and and the principal surprisingly allowed it to happen and um, just let them watch just let them watch all the CCTV cameras follow the kid around follow the kid around from room you know hallway to locker locker to classroom and just like that every day and then we still couldn't figure out who or where or what happened came back again the next day and rewatched it. And I mean, it's, it's really quite unhealthy when in reality, what we found out was that it was just his locker was so dirty. The iPad was in between uh, a tracker keeper and some books. So, yeah, so it's just different. And then don't expect it. Don't expect a sorry or anything (laughs) after that. It was done. In fact, it just went away. Eventually it just disappeared. No, I didn't. I, I had to sit with her for most of it, but yeah, it went away eventually on its own. I didn't rock the boat and just let it be. So Yeah, sometimes that's the best approach. Even though it's hard to do, trust me, trust me, it's hard to do it sometimes. But sometimes what Zach says, just sit back and enjoy it, take a deep breath and appreciate where you are. That's the best advice. That's right. I think that's where we're going to leave you today. So this is a, maybe a little bit of a new new approach. I mean, we're still talking a lot about education, but we're kind of talking more about of our experiences. We've had some interaction on Twitter and Instagram from different teachers working abroad and working in the US or the UK or other European countries as well. Hopefully you can listen to this podcast and then give us some feedback because this is the experience of two guys in three countries. So we've got quite a bit of experience in these places and uh, hopefully some of, most of the things that we have said were correct. But of course, we want to hear from you. We want feedback. It would be great at what, like what Zach said at the very beginning of the show, if we could have someone from another country or someone who has a lot of different experiences than us come onto the show also and tell us what, what 
they experience and share with all our listeners anything that they think would be useful that we missed. That's right. This, this doesn't have to be a, an end-all podcast in regards to traveling and teaching. I think this could be expanded on into several different episodes talking about... Absolutely. Different... And I think we should, definitely. Yeah. And, and it might be a nice little segue to take a break from the really serious stuff and, and move into more experiences, the, the experiences that people have had and how it's affected them. That requires that some of you, our, our wonderful listeners, start sending us some messages and, and hopefully you can get involved with us. You can find us on Instagram at Cheers to Education. You can go to our website at cheers to education.com. You can send us an email at cheers to education at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Patreon. And we're always checking wink, it. Wink. Yeah, yeah. Wink, wink. And we're always checking it. Always. Not, not in the middle of class, though, of course. That'd be wrong. Everybody have a great day. Yep. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. <laughs>